Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to this special future edition of Diffusion. We'll be talking to futurist Janine Carl, and we'll be looking at software for the scientists of tomorrow. The scientists of tomorrow are in our schools today, and they need to learn mathematics. To help with this, some of our schools are using new software called Hot Maths. In a trial conducted by Macquarie University, Dr. Michael Kavanagh of the University's School of Education explained the project to Bridget Mullane. Hot Maths is a tutoring system for learning mathematics. It's web-based, so students access it via the internet. It's designed to support teachers and students in the classroom and also at home. The program is designed for students in upper primary and junior secondary at the moment, and it's for all ability levels. So there are graded activities and exercises that students can do individually by choosing the level that they want to work at. And there are also lots of activities that teachers can use in the classroom, and they can adapt those activities and pitch them at the level of the students in their class. For example, some people have trouble with fractions. Would this help you, or is this too advanced for that? No, this, this is a, would certainly help you to learn about fractions. So there would be diagrams to represent fractions of parts, so students could see something visual about fractions. There would be worked examples about how you add and subtract and multiply and divide fractions. And I'm pretty sure there would also be interactive digital learning objects that students can manipulate on the screen so that they can see something that's actually changing as they maybe change the value in the numerator or denominator. You mentioned interactive digital learning objects. What are they? They're called widgets. And these are the digital learning objects that are dynamic and that can be manipulated on the screen. And what those learning objects are designed to do is to push students' conceptual understanding, to get them to really think about what's going on when they look at the screen. One that we demonstrated at a conference just last week was looking at rectangles, and in particular looking at perimeter and area of rectangles. It's an interesting activity for students to see if there's any relationship between area and perimeter. So... As the area gets bigger, does the perimeter necessarily have to get bigger, and vice versa? Now, that's an activity which, if you were to do by hand, would take a long while because you need to generate lots of examples of rectangles and calculate their areas and perimeters before you can start to notice patterns. This particular learning object in the Hot Maths program, you set the parameters of your rectangle by dragging the mouse, and it automatically calculates area and perimeter for you. After you've done some examples, you might start to notice patterns. So you can manipulate the size of the rectangle on the screen by dragging the mouse around, and you get the calculations done for you, and then you can use those to start making inferences and hypotheses about what's going on. And then, of course, you can test them. So you can make a a larger rectangle, long and thin, and see if it's got the same perimeter or not. You've tested hot maths in some schools here in New South Wales, What have you found out so far? Yes, with colleagues in the Centre for Research in Mathematics and Science Education here at Macquarie, 
We did a fairly intensive study in three schools over the last two years in about 20 classrooms from memory, year seven and eight, where we took a group of teachers who had fairly low technology skills, hadn't used technology much in teaching mathematics before, and we showed them hot maths, gave them some professional development on how they could use it, and then we watched what they did in the classroom with their students. And by and large, we found that the program was useful in terms of increasing student engagement. Students found it a, an interesting program to use, and it also helped in their learning. They were able to use the program to improve their mathematical understanding. The critical feature, though, is that it's the skill and pedagogy of the teacher. It's how well the teacher can use the program. That was the most crucial element in determining how effective it was going to be for student learning. Sometimes we hear that there weren't enough good math teachers. Are you saying that this isn't going to help because the teacher has to be pretty good anyway? Uh, what I'm saying is I think that it can support teachers. And teachers who are willing to learn and willing to try things out will find a program like Hot Maths very beneficial to them. That was Bridget Mullane speaking with Dr. Michael Kavanagh at the Macquarie University School of Education about Hot Maths. Earlier, I spoke with Janine Carl of Future Journeys about what's going to happen in our future. She spoke about new media, mobile banking, and new business models brought about by paradigm shifts. A paradigm shift is a, a change in mindset so that it's often used to reflect a culture and it can actually also reflect an individual's mindset. And a shift is really from one thing to another. And there's quite a few examples that I, I've been noticing. Um, I've spent a lot of time, my initial background was in psychology, and I've um, spent a lot of time in organisational change in corporations. And so you become very aware of when people who are ready for innovation, ready for the future, versus people who are not and are struggling with the changes. And it's come up very evident recently. I was at, um, been at a number of conferences on the future of media and the future of digital arts and also followed some Twitter streams on um, some media uh, conferences. And there's often a big gap between what's happening out on front on the floor, which can be often dominated by large organisations and heritage media organisations, or even heritage arts organisations. And then in the audience can be a lot of people who are already working in the digital sphere and have already addressed a whole range of issues, getting ready for what are new business models and new ways of doing things. So we're looking here at, say, the change between old media and new media. Yeah, yeah. So journalists... Is, is a good example. So the whole area of journalism, what is happening, you know, are bloggers taking journalist jobs or is, as the way I see it, is that the internet, because of its huge research capacity and um, the way we can collaborate with each other, is just um, pushes everybody's capability up higher. There's some amazing things happening in a whole range of areas that make us so much more capable. I mean, I can... You know, I remember a few years ago, if I wanted to research a topic at work, I'd have to go to the corporate librarian and make a list and uh, 
she'd have to search worldwide libraries and come back to me a few days later and say, you can have these now and these might be a couple of weeks. Um, now I just go onto Google and I can find them straight away. It's quite, it's quite amazing, actually. <laughs> and everybody can do that. So the whole area of infographics and communication of information in, in uh, exciting new ways, actually. And uh, this has a, the result of exploding everybody's capability. And I think that's what can be threatening to journalists as they see that uh, bloggers get attention or, um, you know, well, currently now with um, newspapers closing down all over the place. But this has been developing for some time. It's not like it's suddenly arrived on the doorstep. You know, I can remember back in 1999 talking about disintermediation, you know, that big organisations wouldn't be necessary because the internet would actually enable people to communicate with each other peer-to-peer. And um, so we've known for at least 10 years that this was on the horizon. I'm sure a lot longer as well in, in some circles. So, you know, we, we know these things, so why don't we actually explore what that might mean to us? I think people are a little bit... Well, I know journalists are a bit concerned that there's not an alternative income model for them so that they either get paid by a big media organisation that is now firing journalists because the media's changing, there's a paradigm shift in, in journalism. But the new media is free online and a little bit of it is funded by old media and very rare there's bloggers who can actually be completely funded by ads. But for the vast majority of people producing content on the internet, there's no model unless they sell stuff or something. They, how are they going to get paid? If you're a journalist and you don't work for a big media company, where's your income come from? What's the new business model? Absolutely. I think this is a whole revolution, not an evolution, and that's what's so frightening about it, is that suddenly they're um, forced to find new business models and they actually haven't thought a great deal about them. Um, there are a few, few different kinds of business models out there, but I think it's, it can often be very specific to, a, to an organisation, to a, an industry, the content that you write about, um, and so on. So, um, as an example, we, we de- at Future Journeys, we develop games. We have a serious games lab. And, um, and I thought, oh, great, I'll write the strategy and I'll develop all the business models <laughs> for it. And, of course, we can't develop a business model until we have a client. So we can do one with a, a potential client in mind and, um, you know, we're exploring a whole range of things and, and yes, we can then define who are all the players in that and who might actually benefit from it and who would pay, um, who would sponsor it, who, who, who stands to gain, um, you know, health games, well, the health funds stand to gain, individuals stand to gain because they, with improved health, etc. So you actually, it's, it's all can be explored relevant to the industry that you're in. And I haven't explored the um, um, journalism industry in any depth um, other than to see, well, actually quite a lot of traumatic responses to what's happening. And um, one of the things that that I've been doing for about 20 years is actually uh, designing simulations, role-play simulations, corporate ones, so that organisations can actually explore what it might be like in a future that's quite different from what it is now. And uh, we, we ran one in about 2001, I think, um, in which we actually looked at the kind of business models that, say, Sony, BMI and, and so on were operating in in regards to information freedom and 
rights issues. And of course, we came up with the one dollar song. You know, why doesn't anyone come up with a one dollar song now? Apple iTunes has made several billion dollars out of the concept of the one dollar song, and yes. they've actually taken that from the big companies who actually were unable to respond to what the industry was requiring. And the interesting thing about doing it in role play is that if you if you structure it right, people will come up with the most amazing innovative responses because they're not stuck in today. They're actually able to free themselves and to consider what might be possible. A bit of the power of play. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I used to teach strategy and we, you know, take people away for a, a weekend simulation, so a three-day simulation, and you couldn't get people out of it. People get so engrossed and engaged in a game that they're unable to remove themselves from it you know, to the point of having like two or three hours sleep over a three-day break. Refusing to go to the pub was another one. You know, people are so engaged uh, in every way in a simulation that they can actually design the future, which is quite amazing. And in that space, you can actually, you know, design revolutionary business models. I'll probably be some kind of scientist Building inventions in my space lab in space I'll end world hunger, I'll make dolphins speak Work in the daytime, spend my nights and weekends Perfecting my warrior robot race Building them one laser gun at a time I will do my best to teach them about life and what it's worth I just hope that I can keep them from destroying the earth Cause it's gonna be the future soon And I won't always be this way When the things that make me weak and strange get engineered away It's gonna be the future soon I've never seen it quite so clear And when my heart is breaking I can close my eyes And it's already here on earth They'll wonder as I piece by piece replace myself And the steel and circuits will make me whole But I'll still feel so alone Until Laura calls me home I'll see her standing by the monorail She'll look the same except for bionic eyes she lost the real ones in the robot wars I'll say I'm sorry, she'll say it's not your fault Or is it? She'll eye me suspiciously Hearing the whir of the servos inside She will scream and try to run But there's nowhere she can hide When a crazy cyborg wants to make you his robot bride Well, it's gonna be the future soon The things that make me weak and strange get engineered away It's gonna be the future soon I've never seen it quite so clear and When my heart is breaking I can close my eyes And it's already here That was Jonathan Coulton with The Future Soon. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, broadcast around Australia by the Community Radio Network. Previously, we needed giant companies to be able to afford the printing presses 
and the rafts of administration and everything else they needed for all these journalists and all these different things. Now there's small media companies that don't have any paper versions at all. Absolutely. You picked on a perfect point there, Ian. When the cost of production goes so low that there's no barriers to entry, this is true also in um, banking, it totally revolutionises the models. So, for example, you know, with banking via mobile phones, I think a lot of banks are actually haven't responded and the people who are in the banking industry now are actually telecommunications companies and um, I think the banks in many ways are blind to it. While they may be doing some little pilot things here and there and and that's great, um, there are some big issues that not just Australian banks I'm talking about, I'm talking about all global banks are actually unaware of and unresponsive to. And it's again the same thing, that as soon as the cost of production is so low that anyone can enter. The big organisations think that they can still manipulate their market power, but it is not necessarily true anymore. So there's actually telecommunication companies that are able to outdo the banking industry because they're offering services on mobile phones and the banks aren't. That's right, yeah. Particularly in the micro segment, the base of the pyramid markets are... um, Professor Muhammad Yunus put out a, um, a report on the base of the pyramid markets and actually got people to start to think about what that meant, that these are people, normal people like us, demanding services, wanting services. They don't want to pay 200 or 300% to the local loan shark. They don't want to hide their money under the bed where um, you know, they're in danger of being robbed. You know, they, they need access to banking and financial services. They've actually worked out ways themselves of doing it, you know, using mobile banking phones and relatives and so on. So they have the use of a phone in the the village. But now large telecommunications companies have realised this and so they're doing, in some countries, they're doing um, collaborations with banks to provide services and in other cases they're just allowing people to, to add credits on their mobile phones and do it that way. So virtually no cost of um of production at all. Amazing. And that, that's the thing. It's, it's, if it's so cheap to do all these things, then that really shifts the market away from the big players. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a saying in um, one of my favourite people, Jennifer James, an urban cultural anthropologist. So they look at 3,000-year shifts. And so they're looking long-term. And, and she always says that um, big changes become a caricature of themselves before they shift. So it's almost like the, um, say, the power of banking um, became a caricature of themselves where they, they kept their power, they kept it secret, they somehow managed to persuade the ratings companies to rate them at AAA when it's really hard to get a AAA rating <laughs> and certainly not for bad loans. So it's a caricature of what banking is and maybe it is because it's about to shift massively and right. so there are all these other things happening in the marketplace where maybe we don't need banks. Maybe we don't need people to get a million pounds bonus at Christmas time. <laughs> I remember being in London in nineteen in two thousand and seeing that in the newspaper that several of the Citibank guys got um, million pound bonuses for Christmas. Astonishing. It is astonishing, and that's our money. It belongs in you know society's money. We're the ones who decide how that money rolls around the system. 
Do you think that's one of the things that's also changing is now that the cost of production for so many things, one, it's, it's next to nothing or very cheap, and two, it's really just you and a computer, so almost everybody can afford to have it and almost everybody is getting these cheaper cheaper computers. When we know the cost of production is cheap, we're not willing to pay so much as we have been in the past, like all the banking fees and all the other things oh. at the moment we're just paying through the nose, when it costs the bank very little. Absolutely. That is the, the, the worst thing. I think there's a lot of systems that ha- are in place by banks and they still charge you $35 fee for this and 25 for that. And yet it is organised by their computer systems and um, they email you things. So the cost of an email is pretty low um, and they're automatically put out, you know. So, you know, you get the nasty notice even though you've been banking with them for 35 years and <laughs> you still get a nasty letter for you've overlooked a $20 payment or a $100 payment or a $200 payment. I mean, whatever it is. So my vision of the caricature of the future would seem to be that on the one hand, you've got almost everything's free because everything's so cheap to make, to do, to provide. But on the other hand, if almost everything's free, then there's almost no income going to anybody to pay for the free... Well, but you don't have to pay because they're free, but you're not getting paid. So is it sort of an accidental socialist paradise? Well, yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned socialist paradise because I was just about to say, for example, you know, some of the... Um, in the music industry, um, is it Nine Inch Nails that, that gives away the music for free? Yeah, and they, they expect to have sell out Wembley many times. But when they're doing that, that, of course, brings their earning power down because they're just... You know, if you put something a song out on the internet and everyone has to pay a dollar for it or two dollars for it, that's a pretty good business model if a, if a billion people want to buy that. But if if they're only at Wembley, then there's a limited focus, and so they're actually only earning a certain amount of money. So it actually flattens the gap between rich and poor. So the internet has this incredible power to do that. Mm, it, it's an interesting one because they'll also get more fans when the songs are free. Because people yes. say, listen to this, and they'll pick up more fans and so they'll get more people buying tickets and they'll have people who've been to concerts will go back, but also people who've never heard of them before will suddenly hear of them and buy tickets to the concerts. So yeah. it seems to be a good way to ensure an ongoing business at least. Yeah. And then there's there's developing models at the moment. I think you may have seen that, they, you, know, that you can watch, um, I think it's the Bell Shakespeare Company Productions, at the movies. So you can actually see um, global productions of ballet, opera and theatre at the movies now. So, so for example, they could, um, you know, uh, Nine Inch Nails could record their concerts and put them out to the movies in, you know, incredibly high definition and fabulous sound. And you could run theme parties. So that it could make it a big event, even though you're not actually at the live event, you can be anywhere. And these are happening. This is happening all around the world in all sorts of areas. And I think this is one of the things about the future. It is here now. It's unevenly distributed. So you just have to work out which ones are new. And some are transition models. Virtual experiences will become more and more important. And at the same time, as so will real-world experiences. So... You know, what does that mean? Well, it depends on the context, which makes life so interesting. What should we look out for? What's, what's things that are so close to, to coming to fruition that they're going to hit us relatively soon that um, other people might not have noticed yet that you're, you've sensed? Well, I think it's this, this big shift from, you know, the, the, the free, free model. I think that's, that's one of the biggest ones. 
um, anything, the exploiting capability and what I call um, enabling collaboration are the key things. So the internet provides incredible opportunities to collaborate across the world and it also enables cross-disciplinary activity because in the past universities would be silos because, you know, it was hard to send paper around and you'd only have a yearly conference. Now daily you have scientists and engineers who are actually able to collaborate all around the world, collaborate across disciplines and develop all sorts of amazing new uh, technologies or abilities. At the University of California in Santa Barbara, there's something called the Allosphere. And it was invented by Professor Joanne Kuchamoran, who is actually a composer by background. But she's created this two-story anechoic chamber, so it's an echoless chamber. And it's designed for artists and designers to collaborate with scientists so that scientists can experience their science in a visceral way. So they actually go, and visceral just means in a whole body experience, so they could stand in the middle. So neuroscientists and brain surgeons can stand in the middle of someone's real MRI, so the magnetic resonance imagery. So they can actually be inside someone's brain and have that feeling and see and, and also hear the brain. So it's quite amazing. You, should, you really should have a look. It's called the Allosphere, a University of California, Santa Barbara. If you Google that, you'll find all sorts of things, including videos on TED and YouTube, Just which explain it. But it's that, that com- the cross-disciplinary cap- capability, which is just going to explode in all sorts of new technologies and new collaborations. Because the more successful collaborations are, then the more collaborations there will be. And we will see a whole new range of inventions, technologies, artistic and design capabilities. So when we create buildings, they should be beautiful, they should be functional, and they should have zero carbon imprint. And that's a challenge. It's a challenging future. Thank you, Janine Carl. Thank you. And that's all from us on this edition of Diffusion. If you have any feedback, comments, or if you'd like to know more about any of the stories, then send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Bridget Mullane. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. And Diffusion is distributed around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolf. For more science wondering, listen next week to Diffusion Science Radio.